Adnan's free, so next up is Lindsay. with us every friday and you don't say maybe okay you know what <laughs> was that good <laughs> i didn't know what was going on and now i do okay so yeah i did it did it on the fly yeah that rules uh this is Lindsay tucker i am a writer and researcher and the host of this show we've done this like 60 times and i never, it never know gets what to easier say for you i know <laughs> just make me sound good I'm Aviv. I'm the co-host of the show, uh, and I am a writer and musician and filmmaker. And and dr- and I'm driving the bus this week. Woo-hoo. How's your week been, Lindsay? You were on vacation. Oh my gosh, I love vacation so much, and I hate coming back from vacation so much. Right. Well. Okay. So, what are we talking about today, Lindsay? Today we are talking about the song "Teenage Dirtbag" by Weedus. Correct. But before we do that, we have a, a little trip to the mailbag, a couple of responses from our Cure episode. So first is from Lady and Loon. This is Victoria. Uh, Victoria says, hey, Lindsay and Aviv, stoked that you guys are back. We've been back for a couple months, but yay. Um, I teach English in France. Fun fact, I use Friday I'm in Love by The Cure when my students are learning colors and days of the week. That that's pretty cute rules. i love it that's fucking adorable uh signed victoria from lady and loon lyrics for lunch second british advisor for when freddie is too busy playing with his cats i need some cats my life no no one needs cats <laughs> that is and, a lie uh, we, we also have uh a a nice little note from friend of the show nick millivoy who i think i've mentioned on the show slick nick millivoy and he says did you know that WPRB, which is a radio station in Philly, got in a lot of trouble back in the day for playing Killing an Arab. It's not on Apple Music, and it's not on Spotify, only the live version. So apparently there was a complaint about a complaint from some Arab-American groups that the, the song like portrayed them in a negative light, which like I don't know if I quite see that, but I'm not the person to see that, so it's not my call. <clears throat> and The Cure themselves asked radio stations to stop playing it about nine years after it was released. Hmm. So that's why you can't really find it anywhere. Except YouTube. The, the cure, yeah, The Cure never wanted to... Well, but that was the demo. I don't know if I could find the regular version. I didn't really look. Anyway, um, so thank you all for writing in. Turns out The Cure quite... Quite a uh, rich, got a rich history. Yeah, sure yeah. does. Okay. Teach me something. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Main event. Teenage Dirtbag. I'm going to, okay. So <laughs> I, I, over, the, over the week, I thought that this was going to be, as I was researching this, thought this was going to be a pretty brief episode because I knew like a couple things about the song. And then the more I dug, the more I found out that this, this story is extremely my shit. So it tu- this touches on basically all of the things I love touching on in episodes of Lyrics for Lunch. Teenage girls. I do not love touching on teenage <laughs> girls. 
You won't trick me, Tucker. <laughs> um, so what do you know about Teenage Dirtbag and Weedus? I'm here to blow minds. Um, I love this song. I really mm-hmm. don't know much about Weedus. Don't really know any of their other songs. I feel like they were like a mid nineties band. <laughs> um and their only hit is Teenage Dirtbag, which might have somewhat of a cult following. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I know it's been in, in I've heard it in the media, right? Like in shows and movies and Yeah. Um and then like what is my relation to the song? I just always liked it. It's fun. It's mm-hmm. evocative imagery. You know, like I evocative can, of of what? Uh like of maybe of the teenage experience mm-hmm. and being like a little bit weird or not weird, but uh, you know, just not going with the mainstream, liking what you like, and then finding others who uh like what you like, and then you're not so alone. Yeah, kinship, teen <laughs> romance, you know. Uh, okay, so Weedus is Brendan B. Brown, known as BBB by his fans. Weedus is one of those bands where it's like just one guy now, though Brendan B. Brown is a pretty good stage name himself. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, so Weedus is just one guy, but he, does he tour? Kind of. With other people? So, so yeah, so, so currently the only, like, just like how Robert Smith basically is the cure, uh-huh. Brendan B. Brown is Weedus. Okay. But in 1995, when the band formed, it was Brendan, his bu- his brother Pete Brown on the drums, Rich Leger on bass, and Phil Jimenez on like a bunch of. D- he was listed as like multi instrumentalist. Sure. So Brendan and his brother Pete were called Whedon when they were little, or or Weedus when they were little by their dad, and so, Weedus like W H E D U S. And so when thing? they were look, I mean, no, but this is like, I like did a lot of research on like how, what the fuck is a weedus. Okay. And this, the, this is the only thing that says they were called Whedon or weedus, depending on which article you read when they were little by their dad. And so they transformed it into weedus, W H E A T U S weedus. I don't quite understand what that means, but here we are. So I was called gink by my dad when I was a kid. So my band would be ginkus. Ginkus, sure. <laughs> Ginkgo biloba. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is from the Cambridge Independent. We're v- very lucky, by the way, because Brendan B. Brown, Triple B, has been very forthcoming with interviews, and so there's a lot of great quotes from him. Fantastic. So this is from the Cambridge Independent. The band's lineup has changed considerably over the years, according to Brendan. But according to Brendan, there are no hard feelings about the people who have left. Quote, the number of band members we have might be up in the 30s. I'm still very friendly with at least 28 of them. (laughs) I have always said to anyone who gets involved with the band, that's a lot of hard work. And if you don't feel like you want to do it anymore, just say so. We won't have any problems with that. It's definitely not for everybody. And I understand. We've had a lot of people come and go. It's been a revolving door. And some of them have come back. But very seldom does it end badly. Nice. Yeah, so 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 when I say like he is Weedus, he's Weedus, and people can come and go as they please, which like kind of rules. Love it. Okay, so they were gigging around New York, nineteen ninety five, to limited success, and in nineteen from ninety five to like ninety nine, and they hired in ninety nine 
a an entertainment attorney named Ray Mayello who booked them at the Luna Lounge, which is like a bar on the Lower East Side that's like pretty famous for bands playing, or at least it was. And they had like a residency there. They they mm-hmm. made regular appearances. And Mayello helped the group shop their self-produced debut album to major record labels. He sent demos to an A&R executive at Columbia Records named Kevin Patrick. And then he arranged for Kevin Patrick to come see a showcase at the Mercury Lounge. And Patrick saw Wheatus and signed the band to a multi-album deal. Mm. So Maiello, the attorney, was hired as the band's manager. And their self-titled album was released on August 15th, 2000. And it spawned the band's first and largest hit, Teenage Dirtbag. So let's take a listen to Teenage Dirtbag. Little, that was just a little BG on the band. <laughs> Let's play a quick round of Doesn't Slap. Totally slaps. This song fucks. This song is so good. during the song than normal because we just both love this song. <laughs> Man, I feel like mold. It's prom night and I am lonely, low and behold. She's walking over to me. This must be fake. My lip starts to shake. How does she know who I am? Give a damn about I've got two tickets to Iron Maiden, baby Come with me Friday, don't say maybe 
our friendship. I remember I texted you. I got two tickets to Iron Maiden, baby. And like fully not expecting you to know what I'm talking about because everything I say. Why would I not? This <laughs> fucking just rules. like a weird reference to something I like. <laughs> yeah. And then you were, I don't remember what you said, but it was along the line of like, I fucking love that song. I and do love this song. is one of the best songs ever. Ever written. Ever written. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it wasn't that easy to write, though. To eat, to write the song? To write the song. The song took over four years to write. Hold on, quick other question. Was that BBB singing? Yes. Okay. And so we'll talk a little bit about the girl voice, too. Cool. And who that girl voice is. Okay. Should we, should we, let's do a dramatic reading. Okay, fine, yeah. I'll start it. Her name is Noelle. I have a dream about her. She rings my bell. I've got gym class in half an hour. Oh, how she rocks and kids and tube socks. But she doesn't know who I am. And she doesn't give a damn about me. Because I'm just a teenage dirtbag baby. I'm just a teenage dirtbag baby. Listen to Iron Maiden, baby, with me. Ooh. Ooh. Her boyfriend's a dick. And this he, is my favorite verse. He brings a gun to school. And he'd simply kick my ass if he knew the truth. And he lives on my block and he drives an Iraq, but he doesn't know who I am. And he doesn't give a damn about me because I'm just a teenage dirtbag, baby. Yeah, I'm just a teenage dirtbag, baby. Listen to Iron Maiden, baby, with me. Ooh, 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 ooh. And she doesn't know what she's missing. So, oh, yeah. So the third verse is, man, I feel like mold. It's prom night and I am lonely. Lo and behold, she's walking over to me. This must be fake. My lips start to shake. How does she know who I am? And why does she give a damn about me? I've got two tickets to Iron Maiden, baby. Come with me Friday. Don't say maybe. I'm just a teenage dirtbag baby like you. Ooh, 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 ooh. So real quick, I just want to put my, my songwriter hat on, which is like, <laughs> so, so we've got the teenage dirtbag baby and all of the, all of the, the syllables at the end of the lines are E, baby, baby, me, listen to Iron Maiden, baby with me. And then he does the same thing, right? I've got two tickets to Iron Maiden, baby. Come with me Friday. Don't say maybe. I'm just a teenage dirtbag baby. And then the very last one, he subverts it like you. And it is so unbelievably <laughs> satisfying. It like scratches a weird part of my brain that I that just like feels so, so good. Um, so the first half of the song came easily. This is from Rolling Stone. The first half of the song came easily. The hardest part to write and the section of the song that BBB seems most proud of is the infamous third verse. Brown sings the second half in falsetto. He is the voice of the girl. <laughs> As he switches his first person narration from his self to Noel, the girl that's lonely, that the song's lonely boy protagonist has spent the last two and a half verses daydreaming about. I think I thought that was him. Yeah. So he, he drew on his childhood for the high feminine voice that he adopts when he's singing this verse. Um, which he says is a self-protection measure that he would employ as a kid to speed up the process when older kids would bully him. Oh, interesting. Like a little bit like a Paris Hilton baby voice. 
Yeah. So this is the quote. If someone called me an F slur, I would taunt them in a high girl's voice. I would get beat up by older kids and there would be a lot of homophobic slurs. They didn't know anything about you at all. It's just what they said. I found that it compressed the time that you're actually having the shit kicked out of you if you antagonize them by donning a girl's voice. <laughs> oh my god. Mm. I mean, that's pretty it's, good. It's brilliant, but it's also very sad the way we treat very, each other. Very, very sad. Yeah. Also, quick note about Iron Maiden. So, BBB chose to sing about Iron Maiden because he viewed the band's uh, the this band famed for their 1982 classic The Number of the Beast as the archetypal target for Tipper Gore, like heavy metal as Satanism crusade in the 80s. Mm. And quote, this is his quote, that was lo- like noticing adult hypocrisy for the first time. Oh, so so he's like taking a little stab at Tipper Gore listeners who like know the end of this story already. I'm getting there. So. He's uh, BBB says that he saw Teenage Dirtbag and more generally his band as a subtle rejection of the hyper masculine rock and roll music that was selling tens of millions of copies in the late 90s. There is a quote. There's a bit of a talk toxicity to tough guy music emerging around that time that I very much wanted to distance us from mm-hmm. being neither a boy band nor a macho hard rock group. We just didn't fit into the pop landscape. In America, we were hard to place. Quote, record executives literally said to me, I need you to re-sing the song more like a guy because radio won't have you singing like a girl. Good grief. With pop radio, it wasn't fitting well because it had heavy guitars and we talked about guns and dicks and shit. (laughs) No one else talked about that? I guess not. And if you noticed in the version that we listened to in the second verse... They bleeped out gun. They bleeped out gun. So the sentence, he brings a gun to school. My boyfriend, his, her boyfriend's a dick. He brings a gun to school. The gun was removed from the radio version due to the Columbine High School Massacre. Oh, my God. Fun stuff. Yeah, because the song came out just about a year to the day to the Columbine High School Massacre. And in England, it was replaced with her, her boyfriend's a dick. He brings his mates to fights. Which doesn't really make sense. No, it doesn't. Have I ever told the story on air about how my friend and I got accused of writing a bomb threat on the bathroom wall right after Columbine? No. <laughs> I don't think I know this at all. Uh, okay, so my friend Mallory. Hey, Mal. Uh, shout out. Uh, I'm sure I shouted her out before because we had Leo Fest together at her house. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Uh, we were not rebellious uh, elementary schoolers. We, no, we were the people ele- that like in elementary t- school <laughs> took the attendance down, like the folder. You know, your teacher would take attendance, mark it off, put it in a folder, and then we would bring it down to the principal's office and like hand it in. Did you have this at your school? I guess. Well, Columbine was ninety nine. Eighth grade. Okay, so it's eighth grade. Uh, yeah. So we bring. It's the day after Columbine. We bring down the attendance on the way back. We stop in the bathroom and then we see that there's this someone wrote on the wall like crazy what happened in Columbine, huh? I'm going to bring a bomb to school and blah, blah, blah. Like brevity's the soul of it, my guy. So we then are one of our friends 
was on the tennis team and one of the like special ed teachers was the tennis coach so we just kind of like knew her and she was younger than the other teachers she felt more approachable so we were like hey yeah, yeah, exactly. miss rotella we saw this thing on the wall it's a little bit scary considering you know what just happened yesterday and it said that that someone's gonna uh do the same thing here uh or bring a gun or i, I think if they said they, they were gonna bring a bomb i mean there was a lot of just like after 9-11 there's a lot of like rumor mill hysteria about like oh it's gonna happen everywhere it's gonna happen here too yeah and this was just you know when people would write on the bathroom wall yeah yeah on the on that like white brick yeah cinder block or like the the puke colored pink stalls <laughs> anyway all right so we tell mr Tello we saw this thing and then i guess it gets escalated everyone has to go outside and evacuate and then there's more and more rumors right like oh a bomb threat was called into our school who knows if that was true ultimately yeah. though what happened is one day few days later me and Mallory get called down to the principal's office and he tells us that there has been a student that has come forward and said that it was us that they she what? saw us do it and that she okay, was okay so once again <laughs> I'll just all like rumor mill bullshit and that she was only telling on us because she was our best friend and she wanted us to get help now this oh no she wanted you to get help I don't think I need to tell you that this girl is not our friend. <laughs> no, of course. It's just like an attention-seeking behavior, right? Yeah, and she probably fucking wrote it. So then they like have a meeting with our parents, and they do this handwriting sample thing where they like collect from our teachers our old... Handwriting sample? Yeah. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, and they told our parents, look, we, t we looked at their handwriting against the writing on the wall. We don't think it's them, but... We have to take this to the furthest extent and make an example out of it. So we had to go to court. Juvenile like court, court. court? No, actual court. Yes. No. Yes. We had to like get lawyers and go to trial and like say it wasn't us. And on the day, we only went there one day and the judge reviewed the evidence and he said there's absolutely no evidence that these <laughs> kids did anything. Case dismissed. So when, so when do you get out of prison? <laughs> Spoilers. I'm recording this from prison right now. <laughs> from jail. <laughs> Adnan's free, so next up is Lindsay. <laughs> um, holy shit, that's incredible. Yeah, we were just listening I, to Teenage Dirtbag. I, I, I'm like, <laughs> okay, so back to the Cambridge Independent. Uh, the, the, the song's finally written, and they go to record it. Quote, BBB. The guitar sound and beat were things that I worked on for four years from 95 until 99. And then we finally recorded that last version. So it was in the laboratory for a long time. And I wanted it to be this feeling of early hip hop, LL Cool J and Public Enemy from the waist down, and James Taylor and Metallica, ACDC and Paul Simon from the waist Whoa, up. Whoa, what a tall order. I know, right? <laughs> Don't worry. We're just changing the face of music forever. But that explains the kind of like weird scratching that happens in the beginning of the song, right? Sure, yep. It's like mm -hmm. they're doing this like weird, this like LL Cool J thing, which I don't know if it like is successful, but that was what he was going for. Quote, that hybrid took a very long time to pin down and there were a couple of false starts that were terrible. <laughs> I know I'm like um I'm not really sure if that was accomplished but I love the but ambition. <laughs> I love the ambition and I'm glad that you didn't release the terrible versions. Yes, thank you. So, back to Rolling Stone. Before he ever wrote a word of Teenage Dirtbag, Brandon B Brown had the title. The riff was an amalgamation of everything he was listening to at the time. Willie Nelson, Cindy Lauper, ACDC, Ani DeFranco, 
quote, I tried to juxtapose all the metal that I was into sonically and tonally and all the fire and rain type acoustic tones you'd hear from a Paul Simon or Indigo Girls record. Oh, or Indigo Girls. Yeah, so he's just throwing everything <laughs> in, the, in there. <laughs> Willie Nelson, Cindy Lauper, Indigo Girls, ACDC, Public Enemy, James Taylor, Metallica, Ella Cool J, Paul Simon again. <laughs> the Beatles. Uh, when the, when the, yeah, fuck it. <laughs> I think I cut out. There was like one Beatles reference in this, in this whole thing that I cut out. So thanks a lot, Lindsay. <laughs> when the band got a major label deal in 1999, Sony wanted to release the demos as the album. But but Brendan refused, and he spent an additional fifty thousand of the of Weedus's advance on g- new gear to re-record Teenage Dirtbag. Wow! Right. So all of the toiling—I don't think I—I don't, I don't want to say it was for naught, but all of the toiling that this version that he had perfected, he's like, "Fuck it, I'm going to re-record it." Do it. Okay. <laughs> Quote: I changed everything. Oh my God! What? <laughs> Brendan says of the three weeks the band spent at his mother's home in Long Island reworking Teenage Dirtbag in early 2000. I tore the guitars apart, built them back up again, a lot of prototyping. The thing I wanted it to sound like was a very fuzzy yet punchy wall of sound, Jay Maskus, Bob Mould, sugar stuff, but also ACDC type clarity on the punch of the drums. And then also to have the low end of hip hop, it took four years to figure out what the stupid song was supposed to sound like. When we finally got it, I knew we had invented something that was unique to the song and the composition, and nothing else was going to have that, so nothing else does. True. Do we get to hear the old one? No, it doesn't exist. Okay. Hi, listeners of Even the Future here. I was mistaken. The demo version of Teenage Dirtbag does exist, and here it is for your enjoyment right now. For the first few, this is NPR. For the first few bars of Teenage Dirtbag, it's not clear what you're hearing is of any kin to rock music as what sounds like a busted cassette deck competes with what sounds like an MPC stuck in a washing machine. All right, NPR, relax a little. (laughs) When the guitar finally arrives, it shuffles in smelling like hemp oil, treading an acoustic groove closer to Ani DeFranco or Dave Matthews than the missile attacks being conjured that year by Rage Against the Machine and Limp Bizkit. The percussion is light hip-hop pastiche. This is so douchey, I'm dying. (laughs) We're we're halfway through this quote. (laughs) 
It's DJ scratches and ghost notes rendered swagger-free by the toning of an overcranked snare. And later, when that coffee shop guitar finally tastes the might of an overdrive pedal, the result is basically a hair ballad, but for the scronky stoner riffs between each line. None of this should work, but somehow the collision of sounds from across the FM dial finds a strange equilibrium and you might even be bobbing your head by the time the vocals enter and confuse confuse things all over again. Mm, okay. This is why I didn't become a rap journalist. Yeah, especially for NPR. <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude. So in the US, Teenage Dirtbag was not a huge hit. It was like not a hit at all. But I knew of it in part because it was tied into the Jason Biggs Mina Suvari movie Loser. Didn't see it. That was the movie that taught me what roofies were. So this this is from BBB. That was actually the first positive thing that happened with it. Before we knew it, we were in Los Angeles filming a video with Mina Suvari and Jason Biggs and Amy Heckerling, director of Loser and Clueless. She was on set. Three months prior, I had been fixing printers in Times Square. So they did a live action version of it? They did a live action music video. Okay. In the movie. So, so like Mighty Mighty Boston's no. in Clueless. It, it, oh, it, no, no, it does not. So they are not one of the bands that appears in the movie. There are bands that appear in the movie. But th- this was just like a tie-in. I, I think it was on the soundtrack, but I remember this music video. So this is the Teenage Dirtbag music video. So we have Jason Biggs falling asleep on a staircase and then dreaming of going back to high school. Okay, so they filmed this music video with them. This isn't yes, just like with clips Jason from the Biggs film. Okay. And they like play their characters from the movie who are in college. Why is he wearing that hat? I don't think that's helping. He wears he wears the hat th- throughout the movie, and it's like a plot point that everyone fucking hates that hat. <laughs> you can see why it's heinous. So is this bucket hat. Well, the bucket hats are coming back, baby. I refuse to accept that. So quick digression on uh, Loser. The song wound up being far more popular than the movie, which essentially ended everybody's career. Loser was written and directed by Amy Heckerling, who did the same for Clueless, and she directed Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And I remember before Loser came out, there were like news programs talking about her as the sort of like tastemaker soothsayer with like the youths and how they talk. Right, like, because Clueless we gave us youth. like, uh, I you said that I'm I'm okay <laughs> with youths, um, because because Clueless gave us like whatever as if right, I'm and Audi five thousand and whatever whatever else, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which wasn't written by Heckerling, it was written by Cameron Crow, like did was also sort of like a bellwether in teen you know teen sex comedies or whatever, and. So the, these news programs were like, Loser is going to be just the next in her long line of hits. And the movie flopped so bad that Amy Heckerling did not make another movie for seven years. Wow. And it was her last one that tried to influence any teen culture. So the, the one that she made after Loser, which was in like the mid-2000s, was a rom-com with Paul Rudd and Michelle Pfeiffer. But let's watch the trailer for Loser, which does not feature Teenage Dirtbag. Okay, but you liked Loser? It was okay. I've seen it. It's not, no, it's not great, but uh, it did teach me what roofies were. Good afternoon. Hey, hey, what's up, man? How are you? 
Paul is out of touch. <laughs> yeah. Paul's out of touch. No, man, that's cool. Don't worry about it. What Dora gave it away? is out of luck. I'm calling for the Gal Friday job. Are you saying it? <laughs> He's trying to fit in. That is a great hat. Did the producers of Fargo have a garage sale? She's trying to get a break. Hi, I'm calling about the ad for healthy girls with good SAT scores. You can take your clothes off in there. I don't know if that's even legal. And the semester's just begun. Try not to be so much like, uh... <laughs> you. Whoa! Jerry Lewis, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Come on, how about that? Looks like you banged me pretty bad. I know. No, I'm fine. Let's put some ice on it. And all the girlies say I'm pretty fly for a white guy. Woo! You gotta help me. Lisa is all prime, but her helpful friend, Fat Rita, will take her home unless she gets some action, too. Take one for the team. You guys are amazing. Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you. Think you could turn it down at Scotch? Scotch? What the hell is that? He may not get it. She may not know it. What happened to the nasty girl who hates everyone, huh? I don't know. I have fun with you. That's pretty dorky, huh? <laughs> Look who you're asking. But they just might be perfect for each other. Oh, are they oh, in college? Hey, sorry, um... Yeah, they're like freshmen in college. Oh, I love that song. Everclear? Yeah. So they go to an Everclear concert in the in the movie. Fun. So, so they are the like mighty mighty Bostones of this of this movie. Sure, I'm gonna watch this. I will. I'll give you a little bit little warning. It's really misogynistic and rape culture. Oh, weird how you picked that just from the trailer. Mina Suvari gets gets assaulted like four times in the movie. And it's like it's chill. No, it's not chill. So that I will say it, it isn't chill. But you know, uh, she's like sleeping with her professor greg kinnear and she gets roofied and it's 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 bad so the song came out in summer of 2000 and Capitol records serve serviced it to radio and there was a bit of a botched rollout it went to pop radio too fast this is bbb went to pop radio too fast and needed more time on rock radio we toured with eve six and harvey danger and by the time thing right such a good lineup (laughs) And by the time Thanksgiving rolls around, we're performing for two people in Lawrence, Kansas, and we're all sick and have pneumonia. The single had come and gone, and nothing was happening. Columbia Records wasn't calling us back, so it was effectively over. And we were trying to sleep through the holiday to get better, and our our A&R guy calls us. He hasn't called us back in weeks, and he's like, hey, you have to go to Australia. And I'm like, no, I have to get rid of this chest cough before it becomes pneumonia and I land in the hospital. And he was like, no, no, you don't understand. You need to go to Australia because you're going to have a number one hit there. And I was like, bullshit, man. But he was right. The single hit Australia, and it was the number one song over Christmas weekend for them, which is their summer. So it became the song of the summer in Australia. And why? What? What? It just had long. It just had it had longer to like to grow right okay. this this thing of like going to pop radio too fast didn't happen in australia because they weren't trying to push it for a summer they weren't trying to push it for a june hit there like they were in the states they had six extra months got it okay 
So the song was successful in Australia, spending four weeks at number one, and it was certified three times platinum there, and it became the second best-selling single of 2000. It also reached number one in Austria and Flanders, (laughs) while, while peaking at number two in Ireland, Germany, and the UK. It was certified two times platinum. But in the UK, it took until 2018 to be certified two times platinum, and we'll talk about why in a second. And it sold 5 million copies worldwide as of 2014, which is probably close to doubled now. Mm-hmm. The song was ranked number 69, nice, on the top 100 greatest pop songs of all time countdown by the British music channel, The Hits. The video was nominated for Best Video at the Kerrang! Awards. So, Lindsay, mm-hmm. what is this song about? This song is about a guy that's not very cool popular in Mm -hmm. his school and he seems a little lonely and he has a crush on a girl and he thinks she's quote unquote maybe out of his league they don't share the same Mm -hmm. interest Mm -hmm. she has a boyfriend who's a real douchebag and then he's lonely at prom and she comes over to him and uh they find out that they are kindred spirits turns out satan what <laughs> so this is from the Cambridge Independent, which is uh, the 20th anniversary of Teenage Dirtbag article. Quote, BBB. The narrative of Teenage Dirtbag is entirely fictionalized and only touches on some of the characters I grew up with, but my own upbringing would make for a far darker, less popular song. There was a murder in my town when I was 10, and it turned out to be teenagers who were doing enormous amounts of drugs, lots of PCP and acid, anything that they could get their hands on. It was a violent place I grew up in, a fishing town on the outskirts of New York in the 70s and 80s, and a lot of fishermen couldn't make a good living anymore, and so the parents were each holding down a job, barely making ends meet. There were a lot of kids with a key to the front door, and no one was home. There was a lot of petty crime and drugs, and the kids got involved with some Satan thing, and they lured their friend Gary into the woods and stabbed him to death in the name of the devil. Or Slenderman. Was it Slenderman? No. No. It happened a block behind my childhood home in the woods. Woods where I had ridden my bike and gone to catch frogs and snakes. It was my childhood playground that this happened in. The murderer, Ricky Casso, was wearing an ACDC shirt at the time of his arrest. And he was a fan of groups such as Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Ozzy Osbourne, and Iron Maiden. Soon, the local community was panicking about a possible link between heavy metal music and Satanism. Well, I still don't understand his message. Is he trying to say that he's trying to prove that Iron Maiden is not satanic and these are just kids and they're just misunderstood? Oh, that, like- that, that, will, that will be answered. Okay. He'll, he'll, he'll speak for himself. But first, a little bit about Ricky Casso. So this is from a Rolling Stone article from November of 1984 called Cult Killings kids in the dark a police dog went mad on the 4th of july deep in the woods behind main street howling and sniffing he found enough flesh for a fingerprint and a pile of bones wearing a denim vest running pants and white undershorts nikes next to the grave was a black spot on the ground where the body had lain 10 days before burial 
tissue had darkened and blood had drained. The body sank into the earth under some leaves. The worms did their work, transfigured themselves into flies and flew off. They left bones clean of flesh, full of dents from the blade of a knife. 30 stabs, 40 stabs, 50. The eye sockets were whittled. There was no face to speak of. And these were just kids. Over the course of two weeks, as the body became a skeleton, at least 15, perhaps 30 teenagers and young adults were told of the murder, some in great detail. A few were taken to the site, a 10-minute walk from the quaint main drag and harbor park of Northport, Long Island, to view the corpse, a dissolving trophy. No one breathed a word about the killing to the police, to parents, to any authorities. Finally, a girl who had overheard some other girls talking about it made an anonymous call to the police. Wait, that's where it happened? Northport, Long Island? Northport, Long Island. I think some of my college friends are from there. You should ask them about this. The skeleton was Gary Lowers, 17, a high school dropout who had often run away from his Northport home. The alleged murderers were Ricky Casso, 17, and Jimmy Troiano, 18, both of whom had rejected school, home, and work for a life of streets, backyards, forts, woods, cars, boats, friends' floors. They were bag kids of the burbs. They were found the next day sleeping in a car and were subsequently arrested. So they didn't try and keep it quiet. They were just totally mm-hmm. like, we're just, we just did a murder. They were, in fact, taking people out to like show them what had happened. So Casso had been arrested, had been charged in, er, earlier that year in April with digging up a grave. And Gary Lowers was among those who watched him like dig up the grave. This was like a thing that he, he liked, liked performing. And in his pocket at the time of that arrest was a list of dignitaries in hell. Hmm. I, I don't know what that fucking even means. In May, his parents had taken him to Long Island Jewish Hospital. He had pneumonia. And while there, they sought to have him involuntarily committed. They'd already tried the drug rehab route at South Oaks Hospital to no avail. They told the doctors of his grave digging, daily use of hallucinogens and other drugs, suicide attempts and jokes, threatening behavior. The psychiatrists found Casso to be antisocial, but not presently psychotic, and they let him go. Just law enforcement at its best. Yeah, amazing, right? So this is from pleasekillme.com. I'm sorry, what is pleasekillme.com? It's like a it's like a blog, it's like a punk blog. Okay. So it like talks about like punk and metal music. It was the stuff of Tipper Gore and the PMRC's wet dreams. Casso was a metalhead who loved taking drugs and listening to ACDC, Judas Priest, and Ozzy Osbourne. His favorite reading material, you guessed it, Anton LaVey's The Sat- the Satanic Bible. <laughs> So this whole thing was spurned by a, spurred by a drug deal gone bad. Casso and two of his reprobate cohorts, Jimmy Troiano and Albert Quiones, lured their high school classmate, Gary Lowers, into a wooded area in Northport. They were high on PCP. Casso bites Lowers in the neck and then stabs him in the chest. And over the course of three hours, Lowers is tortured and commanded to say, I love you, Satan. When he responds by saying, I love my mother, Casso ups the torture ante, ultimately killing Lowers. What the actual fuck? <laughs> Famous monsters, baby! <laughs> 
like any good sociopath, he not only brags about the killings to the kids at school, but he also describes it as a human sacrifice that Satan himself commanded him to kill. And when he was met with disbelief, Casso went so far as to take doubters into the woods to view Lower's, Lower's de- decomposing body. Two weeks go by before local police receive an anonymous tip about the body in the woods and Casso and the other two boys are brought in for questioning and Casso com- confessed to the crime. Okay, so he's psychotic. He's having a psychotic break um, mm-hmm. fueled by drugs. Yes. And he, quote unquote, lures. I'm always confused. Like, how do you lure someone into the woods to do a murder? Like, I, I guess like, hey, come, we'll give you drugs if you come to the woods with us or something. I don't know. Okay. So this was not a friend of theirs. Uh, I think it was like an acquaintance because he was there when Casso dug up that grave, right? Okay, okay yep, yep, yep. I'm pretty sure he went willingly mm-hmm. and then like was murdered. And so that, that's where like the luring comes in. Sure. Okay. So back to Rolling Stone. This is that article from 1984. Two months later, after the murder arrest, Jimmy Troiano was placed in, special observ- in a special observation cell. Casso was not. Casso was reportedly accompanied by chants of hang up, hang up from his cellmates. And he did so. Troiano, who had been in jail before, signed a confession but later pleaded not guilty. And now, of November 1984, he awaits trial for second-degree murder. It's easy to overlook this this passing sentence in the Rolling Stone article. Two months after the murder arrest, Troiano was placed in a special observation cell. Casso was not. Casso, reportedly accompanied by chants of hang up, hang up from his cellmates, did so. That means that Casso hanged himself in his cell. I was about to ask you that. So he got bullied into hanging himself. (laughs) He got bullied into hanging himself two days after he was arrested. Shit. The crime attracted international attention in no small part because Suffolk County investigators said Casso was a member of a satanic cult and that a throng of chanting cultists witnessed the sacrificial slaughter. The press came howling and sniffing. The throng turned out to be as phantom as the cheering mob at Big Dan's in the rape trial in New Bedford. I don't know what this this fucking reference is, but there you go. And the satanic cult was called the Knights of the Black Circle. That just turned out to be a fading organization of cat-burning, dope-dealing delinquents to whom Casso was not particularly close. He did those things well enough on his own. So the Rolling Stone article turns into like a like an interview. They interview a bunch of people at the um, at the funeral at Ricky Casso's funeral. They- and so we'll come we'll come back to that. Rolling Stone goes to the funeral and starts badgering mourners. Mm hmm. Cool. So 38 years later, Newsweek reports it with a little less like fire and brimstone. They say Casso had a passing interest in the occult, telling friends about Anton LaVey's The Satanic Bible. However, in the documentary The Acid King, Casso's friends dismissed claims that he had any deep interest in the, or knowledge of the occult and speculated that it was more about being edgy and offending people in the community. Reports at the time also labeled his group of friends who called themselves the Knights of the Black Circle as a satanic cult, though there's no evidence that the Knights actually participated in any occultism. Friends dismissed these claims in the Acid King as well, saying the Knights mostly just sold marijuana. This has like Stranger Things vibes. Did this? Oh, weird. <laughs> weird. Remember how I asked if you had seen the new season of Stranger Things? Did you? I did. Okay. Well, was it based off of this? Yes. So if this is starting to sound like the plot point of the new Stranger Things, you'd be right. (laughs) Eddie Munson is modeled after Ricky Casso if Ricky were innocent. And him luring a cheerleader out into the woods only for her to wind up dead later that night 
and ignites the whole town into a satanic panic, just like Cassos did with the nation. And there's another little connection, which is that uh, Stranger Things, which, as we all know, takes place in Hawkins, Indiana, was originally supposed to take place in Montauk, New York, a short 30-minute drive from where this murder took place. Oh, why'd they change it? I don't know, actually. But it, you can look at the original like pitch materials, and the show is just called Montauk. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. But the the Duffer brothers who created the show are not even from there. They're from North Carolina. So like, I don't know why they picked Montauk other than this kind of stuff right that was like the home of the satanic panic there's a lot of satanic panic stuff in long island for whatever reason like the amityville house is also in long island Mm -hmm. so a book was published in 1987 called say you love satan which is what casso allegedly said to gary lowers before killing him so draw your own conclusion about how factual all that is okay quick thing about the like say you love satan thing remember Uh in was it Columbine? One of the school shootings, there was a girl, I feel like her name was like Becky. Yeah, this yeah, was yeah. From, say, I, say you hate God or whatever. Yeah, and she like wouldn't denounce God and then she got killed, but that turned out to be fake, but her parents totally like, went on a world tour. Yep. Do you think this has to do with that? I kind of have to believe that too. I mean, like whether he said it or not, like he doesn't fucking know. He's a 17-year-old kid who's high out of his mind. The uh, who would he have told who who would have told the cops this? Either right. one of the murderers or the other murderer. Totally. Okay. So like, I don't I know. Don't it's it's very it's fun to believe, yeah. right? It's fun for these like jerk-off fire and brimstone pe- small town cops to believe. Um I I am very uh skeptical of it. Um, and the documentary that uh, that Newsweek is referencing called The Acid King was delivered to Amazon in 2019, but didn't come out until 2021. And here is the trailer for The Acid King. The Acid King was also Ricky, Rick's nickname. Long Island, New York, America's fastest growing community. Suffolk County and New York police say that Richard Casso. Richard Casso. I've encountered many, many evil people in my life. So, remember Ricky Casso? Sure do. A teenager charged in an alleged satanic cult murder of one of his friends, Gary Lowers. They fall in the same category as guys like Manson. That was the golden age of Satan. Casso and a group of friends performed a bizarre ritual. And that's why it's great cinema. Or a great story. Satan motivated the killing. You know, there's an evil spirit in Northport. The Knights of the Black Circle. Suburbs were where you got away from the urban decay. Well, they just dragged a kid into the woods in Northport. (laughs) What do you think all of this has done to this town's reputation? Neighbors are scared that these devil worshippers may take their tea next. The, the, I haven't watched the whole movie, but it seems as though the trailer is pretty salacious and then the movie goes about debunking all this stuff, which oh, I it does. Okay, know, cool. respect. Yeah, according to this uh, Newsweek article. So back to the Cambridge Independent. What the fuck does this have to do with our song of the week, Teenage Dirtbag? Well, Please tell me. Brendan says, at the age of 10, I had a tape case full of ACDC, and I was already a budding atheist, but it was still a religious place, New York in the 80s, and parents and teachers and clergy all of all kinds descended upon us with this question, are you a devil worshiper? Are you into ACDC? And the hypocrisy of it and the stench of blame shift. 
I don't know what that means. I'm not sure I fully understood the concept of hypocrisy when I was 10, but I knew something smelled really funny about the whole thing. The effect of the crime was to make locals suspicious of anyone who was a fan of heavy metal music. And as a result, Brendan ended up feeling ostracized. And then his parents sent him to a new school 80 miles away. Oh, my God. I let quote, I left at 6 a.m. to catch the train and I got home at 8 p.m. And it was like going to work when I was 13. So my social life was minimal. So they're like, you're in with the wrong crowd. You have to go. No, the parents actually, I think, were keeping him away from the rest of the town who was already ostracizing him. That's how I kind of read it, okay. that they were protecting him from the rest of the town. But they still lived there. But they still lived there, because like, how easy it is, to, is it to move? Sure. And he's got siblings. Uh, into the space where social life should have been grew playing the guitar. And Brendan's one aim was to emulate his favorite band. ACDC quote when I was nine years old and I saw Angus Young from ACDC on TV I kind of said to myself man if there's any version of that I can do for a living I will have it I just thought that was so cool soon he was playing in bands but the song that haunted him for four years was Teenage Dirtbag my early romantic social experiences were extremely limited and clumsy so that doesn't necessarily make for a big pop hit however Shortly after the Northport murder, there was a piece in Rolling Stone magazine about the crime. That's the piece that I just read to you. Quote, Brendan, that's where I first read the phrase teenage dirtbag. And it stuck in my mind when I was writing the song. So back to that article. Remember how I said they interviewed people at the funeral? Mm -hmm. And the first person they interview is Mike McGrory, veteran dirtbag street kid. What? That's how they that's label how him? They re- that's how they label him. And that is what Brendan B. Brown read in Rolling Stone that inspired the name Teenage Dirtbag. Fantastic stuff. And the quote is, Ricky always had that spaced out look about him. He used to run his mouth about being satanic, like he is the devil. When he was high, he'd always sit there and laugh at you like he was trying to pretend to be crazy. Pretend to be crazy because he yeah. definitely was not suffering any <laughs> mental illness De- whatsoever. Definitely wasn't, wasn't actually crazy. Uh, but where does the term dirtbag come from, right? So like I went on this, this kind of rabbit hole of like what was the first place to use the term dirtbag to mean like a scummy person? Sure. Turns out another murder. No. This is from Mountain Culture. The first media reference to the word dirtbag is from the mid-70s when actress Claudine Longette was on trial for the murder of Spider Savage in Aspen, Colorado. Tell me more. Spider Savage was a handsome, definitely not unkempt professional ski racer. Savage was a big star on the fledgling world of professional skiing. Uh, He pulled in over $200,000 a year and hung around with Aspen's beautiful ruling class as reported in the as reported in the Mansfield News Journal in 1976. Savage frequently told friends, I'm just a dirtbag. Who am I trying to fool? Hmm. And Longette, his murderer, abhorred the term. She hated it. Quote, this is, this is her quote from the Mansfield News Journal. Spider, the object of constant adulation and persistent attentions, used to say, I'm just a dirtbag. Who am I trying to fool? 
she didn't consider herself a dirtbag. But he's now Dead. created the term dirtbag. He is he has adapted the term dirtbag from a bag full of dirt. So we used to, to call people bags full of dirt? No, no, no. This is the first time in print that they've that we've called someone a dirtbag. So is this the first time that like bag like we have like douchebag ass bag like i think so this is i believe so but because this came from the world of like climbing right so dirt bag used to refer to an actual bag of dirt that you like rub on your hands Mm -hmm. and so i think that spider savage was like was like talking about like i'm just a dirt bag like i'm just like a literal bag full of dirt instead of this like fancy pants man and but this is yeah one day, Savage was showering at Longette's mansion. Dirtbags need showers too. When a gun went off in the bathroom, killing him instantly, and a distraught Longette called the Aspen cops, and she maintained that it was an accident and gave the press that dirtbag quote. She accidentally shot him? That's what she says. While he was showering? Uh huh. Classic. <laughs> no no follow up questions. <laughs> Happens all the time. So, back to Wheatus. Brendan B. Brown explained how the song was a statement of defiance. Quote, so when I sing I'm just a teenage dirtbag, I'm effectively saying, yeah, fuck you if you don't like it. Just because I like ACDC doesn't mean I'm a devil, devil worshiper and you're an idiot. That's where this comes from. Nailed it. Really cool, right? Yeah. So, now, now, we, now we're into like act two. All right. So, that, so Teenage Dirtbag comes out. It's like a hit for a while in other countries this is the this is the quote from brendan we were these douchebags from long island we didn't know anything we never looked the part either i was constantly hearing from sony you guys are a little overweight (laughs) that kind of stuff oh so we're saying this to men too apparently so great job sony cambridge this is the cambridge independent again when we were negotiating our second record sony was very upset about there not being another teenage dirtbag on it like the sequel and i thought that would be a really horrible thing to do just borrow the same recipe you got it right with on something else and plug it in and insist that it's good enough i think that's garbage me too this is from observer.com quote brendan all of these are brendan quotes and just from different periodicals we did all the festivals that following summer in 2001. We were on this yo-yo. You're broke. You're not doing this. Wait. You're doing this. Get up. Get up. Get get on a plane. Go. We made the record in my mom's basement and we're not media savvy kids. Mostly by accident we got th- to we got 3 years of being a major label band with no management. <laughs> you, you ever have someone come to you and you get the vibe that they want something from you but they're also telling you that you're a piece of shit? That was our experience of being signed to a major label. Oh, my God. Yeah, that tracks. It was a weird alienating version of success. So after we deliver our second record, we walk from the label and we walk with our second masters. The label didn't like us. And we were this weird pain in the ass band that didn't party and wouldn't wear the shirts that they wanted. So we spent 2004, 2005, all the way to 2009 trying to figure out how to be as sustainable as a band. It got really dark around the financial crisis. Several times we were liquidating all of the stuff we had to make music with in order to pay the bills. I got really good at being a power seller on eBay, but every once in a while, this fucking song would get a little blip on the radar and we'd get hope again. Chris Caraba from Dashboard Confessional would cover it in his sets. 
And when we put out our third album, Gerard Way from My Chemical Romance messaged us on MySpace to say that he loved it. Can I hear the dashboard one, please? <laughs> People are singing so loud, I can't fucking hear it. <laughs> but that's that's the dashboard thing, right? He like doesn't sing his own songs. He just lets the audience sing them. So... Fun fact, while they were still with Sony in Columbia, Sony and Columbia are the same company, uh, Sony tried to get them to kick out Phil Jimenez from the band because they wanted them to be a three-piece like Blink-182. Oh, and they're just, like, fucking just no. Of yeah. <laughs> no, we won't do that. What's wrong with you? <laughs> just get him out. He's uh, kind of fat. He's kind of fat. He's too, he's too heavy. That happened to my friend's band. They were like, you need to kick out uh, your keyboardist. He's too fat. And they were like, same thing. No. <laughs> L- luckily, they can't kick me out of my band. I'm, I'm the one that writes the songs. <laughs> I'm just the lead fucking singer. I'm just the lead singer. Uh, quote, BBB. We got out of the Sony deal in 2006 and we haven't looked back. I think if we had stayed with that system, we would have never put out another record worth listening to. And we probably never have been able to tour again. A lot of the bands from that period you don't hear from anymore. And I was worried about becoming one of those casualties. Doing a lot of work on something that you're proud of and having it put on the shelf is very a very common story in music. We are dealing with, a, with multinational corporations that are never going to care about the humanity of what you're doing. Correct. So in 2009, so they're talking about, he's talking about like how bleak it was in 2000 in, during the financial crisis, right? This is before we got sidetracked on the dashboard thing. <laughs> in 2009, sorry, no, sorry. that's okay. BBB says, the darkest point of our lives, a blip of hope comes through. HBO has optioned the song for Generation Kill, which was a miniseries that they did on the soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. That money saved our lives. So this wow. is the clip from Generation Kill. And we'll talk a little, talk a little bit about it. So Generation Kill is like a weird kind of docu-narrative hybrid where they 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 have they cast real soldiers to kind of recreate the stuff that they went through in the war. procession of humvees Humvees, yeah and a bunch of guys about to go into battle 
and through nervousness or whatever, they start singing Teenage Dirtbag. Now, do we think that is a true anecdote? So actually, yes. If you look at the YouTube comments, there's one from Ryan from two years ago that says, that was me with my Bradley crew, except for we'd sing Mr. Brightside. It's weird how accurate the show is. So one of my friends uh, told me the story that... uh same similar thing as Mr. Brightside, but that it was Taylor Swift. Like one of her friends uh, came back from Iraq and was like, no, I actually love Taylor Swift now. Like whenever we were going in and doing something mm-hmm. that we thought was like super horrific and like macho, like we would sing Taylor Swift songs. So, so yes. And before you, you sort of think that this is a show that glorifies what America did in Iraq, let's listen to BBB. Okay. So he says, I still get a little bit of a lump in the throat when i think about american soldiers who were only exposed to the song because they were overseas in a war which was real i had soldiers emailing us and messaging us asking why they'd never heard the song before and they'd heard it from an english soldier it's so bizarre we only felt like real musicians overseas and these guys felt like different murderous versions of themselves overseas as well which like holy shit that's bleak I know I had goosebumps. I didn't like it. Yeah, and so so this is like I, I, what Generation Kill is like largely about, but this scene in, in particular is like they are almost dissociating. Same with your friends and Taylor Swift. Same with that YouTube commenter and Mr. Brightside, right? If you can distract mm-hmm. yourself with this thing that you feel very familiar with, you don't have to think about these atrocities that you're committing, which is sad as shit. <laughs> yeah, it is. So then in 2012, another big bump for Teenage Dirtbag happens, this time with One Direction. One Direction started covering the, the song at their show. So remember that this song went to number two in England. So this was a hit there. Mm-hmm. And now just the biggest band in the world is covering this song. It doesn't have quite the same edge. Well, because it's the boy band version, right? <laughs> yeah. So. Why is this from This Is Us? This is from the One Direction documentary, This Is Us. Okay. So actually, One Direction, SZA, Five Seconds of Summer, Phoebe Bridgers, Mary Lambert, All Time Low, Rex County, Rex Orange County, and Amy Shark have all covered the song. But this is from BBB. It was 2012. I was standing in a venue in Midtown Manhattan watching my friends MC Lars plays a show, play a show with I Fight Dragons. MC Lars is like nerdcore rap royalty. It's between sets. I open my phone. This is the early days of Twitter, and Weedus and Teenage Dirtbag are trending like crazy. My immediate thought was, what did we do wrong? What did we do wrong? Yeah. And I see this band, One Direction, playing the song at Madison Square Garden, which was blocks from where I was. But One Direction never recorded the song. Quote BBB. That would have made us millionaires, but no, they didn't. They put it in the movie, their documentary, directed by Super Size Me director and noted sex pest Morgan (gasps) Spurlock. Jesus Christ. Yeah. 
So I don't know. Do it. Do with that information what you will. Okay. So since they never recorded it for release, release, yeah. they don't have to pay as much for the rights in the film, right? Because if they if they released it as a single, they'd have to pay Weedus for every usage of it, every time it's sold, right? Versus uh, with the movie, they just have to pay one lump sum. But wouldn't they? This shouldn't be a shock to them like remember with paris hilton how they had to like use their entire budget for promising young female mm -hmm. just to get the stars are blind song yeah so why would this be a surprise to weedus that the they're using the song in the film wasn't a surprise that they used it in the film it was a surprise that they were playing it so the timeline of events is this uh one direction started playing the song live played it at madison square garden Twitter blows up and then that show winds up in the documentary and the movie pays them to use to license the song. And they just like didn't negotiate very well or what? Well, I mean, I don't think that they would have if the higher they go, right? If they're like we want 10 million dollars, they would have just said like no, we'll just cut it out of the movie. Or would they? Or would they, right? So it was a, they didn't have like a ton of negotiation um they also like I think that their record label sets that stuff, but they mm. didn't have a, t a ton of of ground to stand on for negotiation versus if they had released the song as a single, it would be just like we just would get songwriting credit on it. And like every, you know, two dollars that One Direction makes, we just gets a, a dollar of that for writing mm. the song. Mm -hmm. Also weird. So along with other covers, along with the other covers, this has saw this has caused teenage dirtbag to reappear on the british charts every year from 2011 to 2015 what <laughs> including my friend chelsea so friend of the show and owner of newtown book and record exchange who did our, our giveaway last year chelsea mitchell and her band dirty dollhouse did a cover of teenage dirtbag which i adore fantastic so this is friend of the show close friend of mine chelsea mitchell and her band dirty dollhouse singing Teenage Dirtbag at So Far Sounds in Philadelphia. Cute. Her boyfriend's a dick. Um, the song is also pretty ubiquitous in the world of indie pro wrestling. Oh, really? So, BBB Spider Nate Webb is a wonderful pro wrestler who makes his entrance to Teenage Dirtbag, and it's not a clip of the song. He plays the whole song. <laughs> He's the only one who gets to play a whole song. It's four minutes and six seconds. What? Why is he the only one? I don't know. He reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to be a part of a match. And that was another moment of realization where I was like, oh, my God, we should have been touring together. I couldn't see him from where I was in a van trying to make a band survive. Could you fucking imagine <laughs> this, this, this wrestler's walking out and just Weedus is there it's singing just there the song? just there rocking out? Yeah, I fucking love that idea. That would be amazing. So many people mistakenly believe that this is a Weezer song, right? Early days of the internet, et cetera, et cetera. 
Weedus Weezer. So the Rivers Cuomo led band Weezer performs the tune in their live sets starting in 2010, and they didn't have the heart to tell them, tell fans that it wasn't one of their songs. Okay, I take issue with that. <laughs> tell me more. Like, it's not your fucking song, dude. Pay homage or whatever. Pay respect yeah, to pay money. the real band. Yeah. They, oh, they we're just going to roll with this. <laughs> pay, the, pay the money. So this is Weezer singing Teenage Dirtbag. And I feel like Weezer's done this before. Like, Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. With Africa. This is like their whole fucking shtick now. I, I, listen, like, I, I have a lot of... I have a lot of feelings about Weezer essentially becoming a like your like a bar cover band now, but that we'll save that for a different episode. Okay. Just an episode where I just shit on Weezer. Turnabout is fair play though, and Weedus at points covered "My Name Is Jonas" at their shows. Okay. So this is Weedus singing "My Name Is Jonas" in one of their quarantine shows during the beginning of the pandemic. I think that's his daughter. Rolling Stone. For the better part of two years, Weedus has been holed up in a basement studio, meticulously re-recording every single instrument and vocal part to the band's 2000s debut record that spawned their sole hit, went platinum in the UK, and charted in a half a dozen countries. When's this article from? 2020. Okay. In an era when hollowed-out streaming revenue has practically forced aging musicians to monetize classic album anniversaries, Brandon B. Brown is going further than almost anyone. Later this year, the band will release a 20th anniversary album-length re-recording of Weedus, which they plan to promote on a fall tour with fellow turn-of-the-century rockers Alien Ant Farm. Yeah. No way. <laughs> Around that, so that, that tour got canceled, obviously. Around that yeah. time, there are plans to finally release a decade in the making Weedus documentary called You Might Die. Brendan's re recording project has cost him countless thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours spent obsessing over bass lines and synth sounds, fans almost certainly never noticed in the first place. His quest has sent him scouring the internet for gear that most closely re resembles what the band originally used to record the album. He describes the process as a fucking pain in the ass. <laughs> it's not exactly fun, he adds. It's like forensic. Well, okay, so they think that this is going to be... Did it come out yet? This is going to be it, a big it cash has, grab? It has come out. So it's kind Yes and no. The end result is, a is an impressive technical feat that no passive listener would ever distinguish from the original. So why, then, is Brendan B. Brown doing any of this? Correct. The short answer is he no longer possesses the master recordings to the album. Oh, all right. 
So this is not exactly a Taylor Swift situation where he like where the, like he doesn't own them. This is this is what happened. We just originally recorded their debut album on ADAT, which is a transitional multi-track system before we went completely digital. It's like digital tape. Um, and it was widely used in the 90s, but it quickly became obsolete. And when the album came out, Brown says that he was asked to send asked to send his personal physical copies of the master to Sony because they wanted to remix some songs from the album. Quote, I told my A&R guy, this is my last set of masters. Are you guys putting them on backup? And we never found out where they went. Jesus, dude. Yeah. So Weedis and Sony remained, maintained a strained relationship after the debut. And by 2005, following their last LP with the label, they were no longer on Sony. So Brown has queried Sony for years about the whereabouts of his lost masters to no avail. Quote, they would get annoyed when you would start tech nerding them. Like, what are you bothering me for? Good grief. Brown is convinced that Sony either never transferred the tapes, rendering them virtually unplayable, or simply lost them. Yeah. Either way, Sony has never given him a straight answer. An A&R exec at Sony did not respond to multiple questions about the status of the master that Rolling Stone asked them. They're gone. They're in the wind. They're gone. So Teenage Dirtbag still generates a good portion of Brendan B. Brown's yearly income. Quote, I would call it a very fortunate working class musician position to be in. He says, almost like we own a deli. (laughs) Okay. But for Brown, not owning or even possessing the master recordings has been a decade-long source of frustration and anxiety because it's prevented him from capitalizing on a huge potential windfall, like, for example, when the Chainsmokers came calling a few years ago asking to do a remix of Teenage Dirtbag, and Brown, having no original multi-track tapes to give them, had to say no. Okay, that would stress me the fuck out. I would not even sleep at night. I would, lo- I would lose my fucking mind. Are you kidding me? <laughs> With the re-recorded versions, Brown will finally possess new masters of Teenage Dirtbag, a crucial asset should the next chain smokers ever come calling. But on a deeper level, completing this project will also help Brown feel like he finally has control over the most important work of his life. Hmm. Quote, it's like being made whole again. If you make something and you're precious about the process and then you deliver it to the world and suddenly it's inaccessible to you forever, that's kind of shitty. It's troubling. Feeling whole one song at a time is really nice. Mm, Yeah. No, I'm just like, holy shit, especially after hearing how he redid them so many times the first time. It took four years. (laughs) So meticulous. And then they're just like, sorry, we lost it. Not even going to give the decency to tell you that. Now he has to do it all over again and like make it exactly the same. So (laughs) he adds, and fortunately, my voice hasn't really dropped yet, so I can still do it. At least he has a sense of humor about it. And he seems like he has a really good attitude. He's a a cool guy. Uh, So in in order to reclaim what is rightfully his, BBB is obsessing over every last detail of the re-recording. This is Rolling Stone. As beloved as Teenage Dirtbag is, it's hard to imagine that any listener has spent too much time obsessing over the glitchy three-note-like synth-like sound that briefly shows up in the first chorus right after She Rings My Bell. You know what I'm talking about? She Mm -hmm. Rings My Bell. Beep, 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 beep. Still, last September, September 2019, Brown attempted to crowdsource its origin, offering an engineering credit for anyone who could track it down. He was unsuccessful and ended up having to attempt to reproduce the sound on his own 
quote, it turned out to be so much more complicated than we could have imagined. This is just heartbreaking. So you want to hear this is he's explaining the process. He explains the process. We spent nine days transposing and moving harmonies around, moving the sound to different harmonies so that it sounded like the original because we don't know what the original was. (laughs) It was just a phone thing that we sampled from somewhere. He says it took us nine days until two o'clock in the morning. We were freaking out like, what the fuck? How do we do it? Anyway, we got there. But the process was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. We had to do all of this research on DTMF, the Bell telephone system, to figure out what notes corresponded to what buttons. The sound happens again in the third verse, and they're actually different harmonies. So we got the first verse right and the third verse wrong. So we had to start the transposing process all over again. And that was another three days. Oh my gosh. So forgive me for my ignorance with all this audio crap, but how can you just not take a take a recording of it and pull certain aspects out of it? So uh, it's like, think of it like a painting, right? So you, you're looking at Starry Night by Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. That would be like trying to take out only the yellow. Got it. So it, it's just, they're, they're stuck together. But if he had the master tracks, you'd have every single instrument separate, right? Okay. That's that's yep. what we need. So Brown stops and looks up almost as if he's come out of a trance. He stops himself, cracks a smile and says, anyways, you want to hear the new version of the song? I kind of tell the difference. Yeah. I got you class in it's, it's basically his vocals that are, that are the only thing that's noticeably different. Yeah, his vocals are. It's also, good, that, that phone sound, maybe I just. That's the thing you, that he's talking about. I know. Maybe it's because we talked about it. I'm like, that sounds a little different. <laughs> I think, but I also think that you can chalk some of that up to like the, the, like the remix. It's yeah. just like louder. Yeah. I went back and forth when I was doing research. I was like going back and forth and it's pretty fucking close. So the original is the one that still gets airplay. But if he ever has to license it out to like a remix or a whatever, this is what he can send. So upsetting. I know. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. I want to hear him do the falsetto again. I, I, I heard it, and I still want to hear it again. <laughs> the, this article goes into, like, extreme detail about, like, what his vocals are, and, like, they're doubled in the chorus, like Ozzy Osbourne, and, like, how, like, the shape of his mouth is making the vowel sounds, and how he needs to, like, redo individual words. It's, it's pretty incredible. By this point in the song, it is indistinguishable. Yeah, I was going to say, now it sounds really good. Okay. So, 
this brings us to this year, 2022. If you've logged into TikTok or Instagram, this is from The Observer. If you've logged into TikTok or Instagram recently, you've probably seen it. A sped up voiced singing about being just a teenage dirtbag baby over throwback photos of the poster as a teenager with a questionable haircut. It's a fun trend. And it's an easy way to show how cute we all looked as teenagers. And it's not the first time that Teenage Dirtbag, a 2000 single by the band Weedus, has enjoyed a revival. Over its 20-something years of existence, this bouncy bit of guitar crunch has been the bacon on top of a pop culture donut or chocolate in the peanut butter or whatever flavor combination floats your boat. Quote, we're the luckiest band on earth, Brendan B. Brown says. So He's really a half glass half full kind of guy guy, right well he doesn't have to be a power (laughs) seller on ebay anymore so in 2022 just this last month or i think it was in september he had the number one search song on spotify because of tiktok sick quote our booking agent alex texted about it he's like what the hell is this and i was like i don't know dude i have no idea (laughs) we are right in the middle of rehearsals because we're touring this fall finally And it's very exciting. The past week or so has been a disturbance in the force. My guitar tech, he's a 60-something-year-old friend of mine who I used to apprentice under. And a couple of days ago, when I dropped off a bass for him to set up, he asked, so your band is having some sort of resurgence? Turns out he has a daughter who's on TikTok. So it's so quote, it's nuts. There's so many videos. Joe Jonas did one. Cheech and Chong did one. Paris Hilton, Mark Ruffalo, future senator from Pennsylvania, John Fetterman. Uh, my favorite's Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> Have you seen this trend? No. You know I don't so, yeah, TikTok. But yeah, all it is is like showing you now over and then when the when the chorus kicks in, you show pictures of when you were a teenager. Quote Brendan, I sat down and debated all day what to do about it, and I've decided that I'm just gonna go on TikTok and find people who are doing interesting versions of the song and do duets with them. There's this woman, Jax, who did a version of Teenage Dirtbag from Noelle's perspective. I love all of it. I love what people are doing with it. This little song that keeps doing, so- that keeps doing something with my life. We call it a flare-up. It's like shingles. Oh. And, he, and he continues again. We're the luckiest band on earth, you know. It's a little hard to let go of the feeling of scarcity and emergency and crisis. It's just the way that this has gone. But if I had to tell you about how I, if I had to tell you about how I feel about my life, I feel like I'm probably the luckiest late 90s, early 2000s musician in the world because we own our publishing. And that wasn't easy, but it's ours. So I'm a lucky man. Well, at least there's a little good news. Yeah. So what are we going out on today, Lindsay? I think we're going to go out on uh, Teenage Dirtbag from Noelle's point of view by Jax. By Jax. Love Jax. Love her song. Victoria's Secret, but this is Teenage Dirtbag from Noelle's Perspective by Jax, a New Jersey native, just like you, Lindsay. Where can people find us on the internet? Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. And for longer and weirder stuff, shoot us an email at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Leave us a like and a rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in next week when we do this all over again with something that's not this wasn't super depressing but you know something murder we try to keep it upbeat if not <laughs> so until next time i'm a v rubenstein i'm lindsay tucker saying 
listen to Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden, baby. Baby. With us. <laughs>